0: production. Welcome to Real Crime. I'm Adam Shand and this is Australian Detectives. On the 4th of July 1991, one of Australia's most brilliant citizens, Dr Victor Chang, was gunned down on a suburban street in Sydney. The renowned heart surgeon was murdered after a simple traffic accident. The homicide investigation was led by Detective Inspector Jim Council, a senior homicide man with experience in Asian organised crime, a rare thing in the New South Wales police force at the time. Council's team would follow the evidence into a sordid conspiracy, driven by greed and executed with callous stupidity. Supreme Court Judge John Slattery described it as an absurd improbable plan always doomed to failure. In this episode, Jim Council explains how the killers were brought to justice in an operation spanning two continents. And Jim also talks about the unsolved case that still haunts him and the killer who got away. So Jim, welcome to Australian Detectives. (laughs) We really appreciate your time today. Thank you. How did you join the force? How did that happen?
1: When I left school, I didn't have a trade. I was born in Tasmania and uh, grew up on a mixed farm and then... uh, Later on in life, I uh, decided to uh, leave and I went to New South Wales because my parents had some relatives there and uh, I did a few different jobs. I worked in the um, furniture industry for a while and uh, I got married and I decided I needed some sort of a permanent job. So I I thought the police would be a a challenge and that's why I joined. Well, I had a wonderful time in the police. I uh, I think it was the best move I could have made.
0: Jim was first stationed at Bankstown in Sydney's south-west. As it is today, it was a busy area with lots of crime. The job offered a life of adventure to a gregarious man of 27 who thrived on street policing.
1: Well, I was in uniform. I oh, used do accidents, attend any disturbances or issues of that nature, but... Mainly if something serious happened you will you always handed it over to the detectives and that's one of the reasons why I wanted to be a detective because I didn't want to hand things over. I wanted to finish it myself.
0: <laughs> yeah. I reckon by about seventy two, seventy three, I was about ten then and I was watching Homicide and Division Four, particularly Homicide. Yeah. And the detectives were the superstars. They were the ones that all the kids wanted to be.
1: <laughs> yeah, I suppose so. Mind you, I wouldn't downgrade Uniform people because they're so important in the job and they've got so much knowledge because they're on the road all the time. Yep.
0: Yeah. The selection process to become a detective was rigorous. Well,
1: first of all, you you were uh, interviewed by a panel of three detectives and uh, if they deemed you satisfactory, then you'd go to a uh, police station and uh, work on what they call the A-list with an experienced detective and then... uh, after a certain time, if you wanted to continue in that field, you uh, applied to do the detective's course. And uh, I did mine at Ranwick Tech. That was back in 1972. It was three months and the most intense course I've ever been involved in. It was very intense. Why? Well, just what they were teaching you and how much they were teaching you and what you were required to do and... And they had instructors there from various parts of the police, like you'd have prosecutors, you'd have detectives that were working on criminal investigations, and it was really a great course. I enjoyed it.
0: After stints in the fraud squad and the breaking squad, Jim was shifted to Hurstville, where after a couple of years, he was drafted into homicide. He was 38 then and a seasoned investigator. He would go on to work on dozens of high-profile cases.
1: I was transferred to South because the Homicide Squad was broken up into four groups and uh, as a first-class sergeant, I was in charge of the Homicide Squad of uh, South West. When I went to the Homicide Squad, there was a staff of 40. Now, we had about somewhere between 100 and 110 murders every year in those days and bearing in mind... There was forty at the homicide squad, but you had three or four people who were administrators, first-class sergeants, and that sort of thing. And it was very difficult because you sort of couldn't spend sometimes the amount of time you wanted to on a particular investigation. And uh, I know with the Mary Wallace one, I spent three months on that, and that's probably as long as I've on any murder I've worked on.
0: Mary Louise Wallace disappeared after a night out in 1983 and the evidence gathered by Jim Council was used to convict her killer years later in 2017. You can hear the full investigation into the Wallace case on my State Crime Command podcast. In 1990, Jim was at the head of a task force looking into Asian organised crime, including extortion of Chinese businesses by a standover man.
1: Well... The reason it was first formed, there was a restaurateur from uh, over the North Shore, he wrote a letter to the Federal Police and also Bob Hawke's secretary that this particular person was standing over Asian restaurants and uh, Asian prostitutes and uh, the letters that he sent to the Federal Police, they were forwarded back to us because it was a state matter and... uh, That's how the task
0: force eventuated. So what was the nature of the the standing over that was going on? Well, he was
1: standing them over for money and he he was associated with other known criminals in the area. So we had the observation squad watching him for quite some time and he had a number of firearms buried in a vacant allotment at Cabramatta. He lived in a a unit at Ashfield and uh, when we arrested him we had... uh, we found sawn-off shotguns and rifles, quite a bit of ammunition. So he was setting himself up to commit crime.
0: And he was uh, Chinese ethnic. He was a, yeah. He was Asian.
1: Yeah. We arrested him and charged him, and uh, it was then that I mentioned to uh, Norm Moroni that we were, obtained all this other intelligence. What should we do with it? And he said, "We'll keep going." So I got some more police and we kept going and that's how it started.
0: Council was still working on Asian crime networks on July 4th, 1991, when Victor Chang was shot. So it was natural his team was given the job. His experience with extortion in the Asian community would prove vital to the outcome.
1: So I think it happened at about 7.45 and I think I got the call about 8 o'clock. I was in the office and I received a phone call from the radio section to say that there'd been a shooting at Mossman, that we might be interested in having a look at it. So we went over and, of course, there were a lot of other police there by the time we got
0: there. Crucially, police had eyewitnesses to this brazen daylight murder. They said Chang was seen arguing with two Asian men. One witness was close enough to hear Chang shout, they have a gun. Just moments later... The surgeon was shot twice in the head. When he shot Chang,
1: there was a guy walking past on his way to work and he pointed
0: the gun at him and threatened him. Sydney was shocked at the murder and wild speculation about the motives circulated in the media.
2: It's thought Dr Chang was possibly the victim of an extortion plot by the Chinese Mafia. Police are following up a lead that the killers were trying to coerce the imminent surgeon to join an international racket in human organs for transplant. One theory is that Chang was under pressure to transplant organs obtained from executed Chinese criminals into wealthy patients.
0: Because initially the the talk in the press was that these were the triads.
1: there was all sorts of things. There was... Chang was involved in body parts and all this sort of business. But it was quite obvious it was straight-out extortion.
0: And fairly amateurish.
1: Very amateurish, yeah.
0: What the public didn't know was that police had a strong lead on who the shooter was. He'd left behind a massive clue to his identity.
1: So what happened when we got there... Well, when I got there, we discovered there was a wallet had been found near the scene. Now, as it turned out, it was the shooter that belonged to him. But at that stage, you couldn't just guarantee that's who it was, that there could have been people on their way to work or anywhere. Anything could have happened, how that wallet came there. But when we examined the wallet, there was um, addresses in Victoria
0: uh, Dalesford Dalesford 112 kilometers northwest of Melbourne is the gateway to the Victorian Alps.
1: There was a couple of phone numbers, Victorian phone numbers.
0: The wallet belonged to a 48-year-old man named Chu Seng Lu. Inquiries with Malaysian police and Interpol established that Mr. Lu had done 12 years jail for armed robbery before coming to Australia in February of that
1: year. So, I contacted the homicide squad down there and I told them what's happened and uh, I wanted the telephones put off and I want surveillance on the place at Dalesford.
0: To verify Lou's appearance for the surveillance team, counsel had brought in the eyewitness from the murder scene.
1: When we interviewed this person that had been threatened, he was shown the photograph because in the wallet was a licence with the crook's photograph. And he identified him. He said it was him.
0: I tell you, how often do you get a a situation where the killer not only is identified by witnesses but leaves his wallet behind to remove any doubt?
1: Well, funny, I've had two instances in my time in the cops where a wallet was left at the scene. (laughs) Certainly very
0: helpful. Rumours continued to swirl about the case amid rising public outrage about Chang's senseless murder. There was intense pressure on police to get a result.
1: There was so much information coming in. He was such a high-profile person. Everyone thought the world of him because of what he'd done in the medical field. It was quite a lot of pressure on the investigators too to to get the job done properly.
0: So, you got this break at the very beginning of the investigation. What what are the next steps you took from there? Well, what I did, I arranged for
1: two police from the task force to go down to Melbourne, got some photographs made up from the one off his uh, licence, and uh, two days later, they spotted him at Dalesford. Anyway, uh, he caught a train into Melbourne, into the city, and... Uh, They followed him all the way, of course, and uh, he was seen talking to a number of people. One of them was the co-accused, but we didn't know his name or his identity at that stage. Some more police went down to help the Victorians and they were very, very good. And on the Saturday, I can't remember the exit, probably a week and a bit since he was murdered, He. He changed his identity down there as best he could.
0: Changed his appearance. Mm. Yeah.
1: The surveillance police were following him everywhere anyway. He caught a bus to the airport and when he got off the bus, our guys were there and grabbed him and... We are talking back and interviewed him.
2: Two men have faced a special pre-dawn hearing in Melbourne today, charged over the murder of Australia's leading heart surgeon, Dr Victor Chang, who was shot dead this month on his way to work. Chusing Lou, 48, was arrested at Melbourne Airport Saturday afternoon and charged by the court sitting at 3am with the murder of Chang in Sydney on July 4. A second man, Jimmy Tam, 39, of Melbourne, was arrested and charged with being an accessory after. To
0: the fact to murder. This second man, Jimmy Tan, had not been at the scene when Chang was murdered and had in fact pulled out of the plot. His evidence would bring the killers down. The
1: actual story itself, originally there was three people. Chu Sing Lu, he was the shooter. He came from Kuala Lumpur. He travelled to Victoria because he knew a guy named Philip Lim, who worked in a Chinese restaurant and he was a mad gambler and he was in debt for a lot of money.
0: The 31-year-old Philip Lim was the so-called mastermind of this plot and recruited Lou, who arrived in Australia five months before the murder.
1: Anyway, the reason that Sing Lou came to Australia, they wanted to identify an Asian person who they thought had a lot of money and they were going to extort $3 million from the victim. The three of them drove up to Sydney. The third fellow, he had the car. was a little Toyota and uh, they stole number plates off a similar type of vehicle from Punchbowl and when they were following Chang, they'd put those plates on the car. Mm. And uh, they drove up and they got accommodation around Ashfield somewhere in a room and they surveilled Chang because he was at St Vincent's Hospital and they followed him a number of times. Anyway, this particular day they followed him home. Their intention was to force their way into the house, tie the family up, and Victor had uh, three children and they were going to hang the kids one at a time until such time as he produced the money. Anyway, when they got there, there was a strange car in the driveway, So they aborted that.
0: The trio became a duo after Jimmy Tan decided to pull out.
1: He came to Sydney with them, but after the attempted entry into the home when the strange car was there, he got cold feet and he went back to Melbourne, but he left his car there for the other people.
0: Undaunted by Tan's departure, Chu Seng Lu and Philip Lim continued with their foolhardy plan.
1: About a week later, they went to his home and they were going to follow him when he's on his way to work. And then up Military Road, I think, they purposely ran into the back of him and he pulled over into Lang Street, obviously thinking he was going to change particulars with the person driving the other car. Anyway, their intention was to kidnap him and to take him back home and do what I said with the family. However, he put up a fight, obviously, and uh, choosing Lou shot him.
0: Why did he shoot him,
1: do you think? Well, I have no idea, probably because he could identify him. The first bullet went in the, the cheek here on the right side of his face, exited behind the ear. That rendered him unconscious, but it wouldn't have killed him. But when he fell down, Chu Sang Lu shot right him in the back of
0: the head. Chu Sang Lu was interviewed by detectives. So you grabbed Lu first... How cooperative was he at the beginning? Well, he he interviewed but he didn't
1: make any admissions. But a lot of things were put to him about the circumstances of the shooting and uh, it was pretty obvious that, you know, he was the person involved because he's left his wallet there and
0: he was identified by the person he threatened after he shot Chang. Jimmy Tan was much more cooperative. In return for a pardon, he told police everything.
1: He gave good evidence and he identified the second offender that was with Chu Sing Lu, Philip Lim, when he was interviewed and he told us the story. He was the one that gave us all the information about what they were doing and what they intended to do and so forth. We didn't get that from the two offenders that were involved in the shooting.
0: So what happened next? So you've got your informant, who's one of the co-conspirators, and you're now full steam. I guess you go back to your two suspects. What happens next? Well,
1: Chiu Sing Lu, he was the shooter. He was uh, extradited to New South Wales and charged. And Philip Lim had left the country. He was the second person involved. We knew that he went to Kuala Lumpur. And we got in touch with the Malayan police And uh, they were very, very good. They went out of their way to assist us and uh, I sent some police overseas. We'd established that there was a uh, female dancer, Kitty Liu, who was an associate of Philip Limbs. Anyway, we put the observation squad on her and she eventually left Australia and went to mainland China. She was put on the alert list at Kuala Lumpur by the Malaysian police And uh, a couple of months later, she returned to uh, Kuala Lumpur and uh, when she arrived, she went to a phone box and made a phone call and shortly after that, Philip Nim turned up and the guys grabbed him there and he was subsequently extradited
0: to Australia. Great international cooperation.
1: Oh, wonderful. I don't think I've ever been involved in any investigation where the assistance and cooperation from other law enforcement agencies and the public was so high.
0: I think you had Miles O'Toole. Dennis O'Toole was doing the interviews. He
1: interviewed uh, Philip Lim, yes, and Ronnie Smith and Paul Tuxford interviewed uh, Chu Sing Lu.
0: And what were their attitudes in the beginning when they were being interviewed? I mean, there was a mountain of evidence against them at this stage.
1: Well, they made no admissions. Choo Sing Lu said he'd lost his wallet and uh, someone must have picked it up or... He had no idea, but he knew where he'd lost it. <laughs> of course
0: he did. <laughs> uh, obviously, your intention is to get them to, to confess.
1: That's right. But we had a lot of evidence against them. But Philip Lim, he maintained that he wasn't involved in the shooting and but he was, he was armed. We found out from the third offender, Jimmy Tan, that they were both armed at the time and they dumped their weapons into a, a waste paper bin somewhere.
0: Would you like to have recovered those? Well, I guess it didn't wasn't material in the end.
1: Well, it would have helped to some degree, but it wasn't important, that important.
0: <laughs> Philip Lim caved before his trial and confessed to everything. Yes. And in the end, they were very... Lim in particular was very contrite and has expressed his contrition many times over the years. Yeah, but the other guy didn't. Why do you think that was? I don't know. I've got no idea. What was his background? Was he a hardened killer? He'd done
1: 12 years for armed robbery before he came to Australia. Crimes of violence, you could say, yes.
0: So he was just a a convenient accomplice for Philip Lim to uh, address his gambling issues?
1: Yeah, they came out specific. He came out specifically to target who they thought was a wealthy Chinese person. Mm. They just didn't understand our culture.
0: Seng Lu eventually also pleaded guilty, serving 21 years of a 26-year sentence before his release in 2012. Philip Lim was sentenced to 24 years, with a minimum term of 18. He ended up doing 26 years before his release and deportation to Malaysia in 2010. And such a tragedy because you think how many people that Victor Chang had helped and how many more he would have helped. My word. Yeah, it
1: was so sad,
0: really. This was a triumph for Jim Counsel's team, but every detective must also experience the frustration of guilty people walking free. At 83, Jim still thinks about one alleged killer who got away. Well,
1: there was one uh, that I uh, uh, I went to, uh, Albury, there was an 18-month-old baby found around in the Murray River. I won't go into the details of that, but it was pretty obvious that His mother went out that evening and left a de facto guy in the house and I think the kid wouldn't stop crying so he uh, drowned him in the Murray River.
0: You couldn't pin it on him?
1: Well, we didn't know because what happened, he had a barrister from Sydney appearing for him and we had a police officer on the highway patrol who on this particular night drove his motorcycle from the police station to the airport and back to the police station on on both occasions. He saw a male person carrying a small child in the direction of the Murray River. He made no admissions, of course, and he'd been interviewed by the local police before we got there and he denied any involvement. He was certainly involved, it was him, but the jury, uh, they'd had the trial at Griffith because they didn't think you'd get a fair trial at Aubrey. And I don't think, uh, that in those days around Griffith, the public were not that impressed by the police.
0: <laughs> so it made it hard. So, you had to, yeah, e- even though this was the just outcome, it wasn't going to be a straightforward matter.
1: No, no it was uh, one that I was very disappointed I wasn't able to get a result on. But that happens. You can only work with what you've got. I think that would be a shattering experience, the death of an 18 month This has changed a lot since I was part of it, but uh, I think for the better.
0: So tell me, uh, what's that one piece of advice you'd give to someone who's aspiring to a career in, in detection and the police?
1: Regardless of who you're speaking to, and speak properly and give them respect. Respect and responsibility are two very important things
0: in police work. That's why they called you Gentleman Jim. <laughs> we'll leave it there. That's fantastic. Thank you so much. No, that's okay. It's... Uh... My pleasure. If you want to learn more about Jim Council's work, search State Crime Command podcast, Mary Wallace Investigation. Executive producer, Grant Tothill. Mixing, editing and theme music by Matt Nikolich. The associate producer, Sarah Grinberg. Research by Nolly Way Shand. Digital producer, Jack Shand. This has been a Real Crime production. Written and produced by Adam Shand.
2: Listener.